so great to be with you. And we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. So whether you're joining us online, you're out in the patio, you're here in the worship center, I encourage you to take out your message note sheet. You'll definitely need that today. Uh, if you're watching online, of course, you can download that from uh, whichever platform you're on. But uh, I'm excited to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah, let's, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here in your house and um, under your leadership and under the leadership of your Holy Spirit who comes, you promised, would be our teacher. And so, Lord, we come with that expectation. We want to be on the kind of the edge of our seat, listening in to what you're saying to us today, that we can truly be transformed and we can become those people you created us to be. And so we pray that you would, you'd be our leader and our teacher and our guide. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our story starts today uh, downtown in a major U.S. city uh, at the federal courthouse. And the last couple days, uh, the jury has been selected. The foreman has been chosen. The jury has been briefed by the judge on their responsibilities. And now the time has come. And so the door opens at the side of the courtroom and they watch the jury as they come into the jury box on the side of the room. And as they walk in, they can see over on the far side of the room, they see the defense attorney and the defendant um, who's on trial and for uh, international drug running. And uh, on closer to them is a prosecution attorney and after they find their seats and the judge comes in and he's introduced, all rise, you've seen it before. And after the opening statements by each of the attorneys about what they're going to prove in this, in this case, comes a moment that is one of the most important moments in this whole trial. It's the presentation of the evidence, it's the calling of witnesses, the giving of testimony. And as the jurors sit there, they begin to sense the gravity of the situation. That they're going to hear this evidence, they're going to hear this testimony, and based on that, they're going to make a decision that's going to determine the future of this young man. Well, today, we are continuing the series that we've been in now for the last few months called Signs, the Path to Life. And if you're brand new, I want to welcome you. Um, this is a, a series about Jesus. It's an in-depth look at the life of Jesus, um, as seen uh, specifically through the eyes of one of his closest friends, followers, confidants, a man that we call John, uh, or knows the Apostle John, who in turn, at the end of his life, is writing um, his description, kind of a biography of the life of Jesus, uh, based on his firsthand experience, um, what he saw, what he heard from Jesus over the two or three years that they traveled together. Um, but a special focus, and it's why we call the series Signs, a special focus is on seven of the many signs, supernatural signs, miracles that Jesus performed over the course of two or three years that John feels are especially helpful for us to understand who Jesus is and why he has come and what it means to follow him, kind of the path to life for our lives. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, the last two weeks, we've watched as Jesus 
has traveled from the north of the country, from an area we call the Galilee in the north where he's grown up, where he ministers. He's traveled with his men south to the spiritual capital of the nation, to Jerusalem, during one of their major national kind of week-long feasts. And while he was there, he performed this third sign that John wants to highlight. He, uh, he, he heals a man who's been lame for 38 years at the pools of Bethesda. And as a result, he comes into major conflict for the first time in this gospel with the religious and political leaders of the nation because he's healed this man on the Sabbath. And in their opinion, uh, that's violating the law of Moses and a very serious crime. Uh, and when they challenge Jesus on this, instead of backtracking or apologizing, he takes the conflict to a whole new level by claiming the reason he did this is his father showed him to do it, claiming God is his father, making himself equal with God. And if there's any question what he's doing, he goes on, and we looked at this last week, to make two specific, what I call cosmic claims. He claimed that that he has the ability to give life to the dead, and then he claimed at the end of time, he will give life to the entire human race, raise the entire human race back to life, and that he will judge each of us, and that our relationship with Jesus will actually determine our eternal destiny. Now, those are some huge claims, are they not? And so if you're gonna make claims like that, you need to back it up. Anyone can make a claim, and Jesus understands that. And so what he's going to do today is he's going to begin to call witnesses to the stand, like in a court case, to give the evidence or the testimony to back up these claims that he's making. And so if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn to John chapter 5. We're going to pick it up in verse uh, uh, 31. So in Jewish, the Jewish world, in Jewish culture, uh, when you took a case to court uh, and you made an accusation or a claim in court, the law of Moses in the Old Testament re required that you had at least two or three eyewitnesses. You couldn't just make a claim that someone had done something or you had done something. You had to back it up with, with, claim, with uh, witnesses. And so Jesus is going to step into that world, in, into that Jewish mindset that he's a part of, and he's going he's gonna to present the witnesses that back up these cosmic claims that he is making. And so uh, we'll pick it up here in chapter 5 and verse 31. So he says, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. So notice that language. You're going to see it all the way through. Testimony, uh, testify, witnesses. This is the context. Now, so what Jesus is saying is that, um, he says, if I testify about myself. So he just made two cosmic claims, that he is the life giver, that he has the power to raise the dead, that he is the judge of all the earth. He's made these claims. And he says, if I testify uh, by my, uh, to myself, uh, my testimony isn't true. Not in the sense he's not telling the truth, but it's not valid in a court of law. It wouldn't be considered credible because you, anyone can claim anything, um, it, but you, you need other witnesses. He says, so there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. All right, so, so here he's gonna begin to, he's gonna talk, he's talking about the Father. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus, uh, Jesus doesn't need, like they're challenging his identity. He is going to be presenting 
testimony, uh, witnesses to support his claim. But he wants to be clear that he's not doing this for his own sake. He knows who he is. He doesn't need others to testify to him. Like he's insecure. Um, but he's going he's gonna to bring these other witnesses for their sake so that by, in the hopes that they can be saved. That they'll, they'll realize who he is. And so we're introduced to this courtroom scene. Now we've all seen this, right? We've all watched Law and Order. We've all seen this in one of its 18 different versions uh, over its 20 years or whatever. So we, we've all seen how this works. We've, we've all seen these courtroom scenes where witnesses are called, they give their evidence, and then they're, they're cross-examined, right? So, um, and this is a very powerful thing. Um, it becomes even more powerful when you experience it firsthand. Uh, I don't know how many of you have had the privilege of serving on a jury, but I've had that privilege a couple times, and I mentioned this at least once before in a message I gave, but, uh, but this takes us back to the story we started the day with about this kind of federal drug running case. And so, so when Lynn and I were living in North San Diego County, I was called to San Diego to serve on a jury, and I was selected to serve on the jury, and then I was selected by the jury to be the foreman of the case. And there was this international drug running case, and I won't go into all that. I think I've talked about that before. But what, what I, one of the things I remember about that is the gravitas that you feel in that moment. That uh, you've seen it on TV, but there's something about sitting in the jury box, and then especially as foreman, feeling that when, when the witnesses begin to be called forward, you're really paying attention because you realize that this young man's life has been accused of a major federal crime, that his life is in your hands as a jury. And so that, so that you're gonna be very careful to lean in, to take good notes, to, to pay attention, because you realize that what's at stake. And so what we're entering into here is Jesus is going to begin to present the evidence, the witnesses, the testimony that support the cosmic claims that he has just made. And he's going to call several witnesses to the stand. Now, the first witness he's going to call to the stand is someone we met back in chapter 1. His name is John the Baptist. So do you remember this back in chapter 1, very early on, that that John introduced us to John the Baptist, this famous prophet that had come into Israel. And I don't know if you remember this, but the religious leaders in Jerusalem actually sent envoys to him to find out who are you, why are you doing this, what are your claims about yourself? And I don't know if you remember, but when these envoys came from Jerusalem, from the religious leaders, John was very clear. He said, I want to be super clear. I am not the Messiah. That my role is to introduce the Messiah. And there's one who's coming after me who is greater than me because he was before me. And he is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world, and he is going to baptize his followers in the Holy Spirit, ushering in this new kingdom age. And so they, they knew about John. They were very cognizant of John's testimony, and John was extremely popular with most people. They believed he was a prophet, but the religious leaders have not taken him seriously. So the first, the first witness Jesus is going to point to is John. So let's see what he says. In verse, um, in verse 33, he says, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. He's reminding of what they already know. 
He said, not that I accept human testimony. I, it's like I'm not making claims based on other people's claims of me, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp. He was like a light that burned and gave light, kind of showing you the path. And you chose for a time. Remember, Jesus is not just speaking to the religious leaders. He's speaking to the crowd there. And he says, most of you enjoyed his light. You believed in him. And so his first witness is John the Baptist. His second witness, he's going to call to the stand, are his supernatural signs that he's been performing, like the healing of the man of 38 years. And so he says, I have testimony weightier than that of John. So John was my first witness. Now my signs, my miracles are going to be the second one. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, like I just healed that guy. Remember, you know, like three hours ago, uh, they testify that the Father has sent me. And so for most people, as we're going to go through the gospel of John, for most of the crowd, it's going to carry a lot of weight. It's like when, when, you, when, you do, when you do miracles like this, it's like it would suggest that God is with you. And he says, uh, and now he's going to call his father to the witness stand. And the father who has sent me himself testified concerning me. Now, in a sense, it's interesting because the father, his father is the power or the witness behind all these witnesses, isn't he? Like he's, the father is the one inspiring John the Baptist. The father is the one uh, leading him to the works. We'll see that. But on top of that, there are also other ways the father has given witness to the son. Like remember when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water and the voice out of heaven said, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. And so we're gonna see the father giving witness to Jesus in many ways. And then he goes on and he says, but here's the problem. And here's, here's the interesting thing. What Jesus is gonna say today, the problem is not the quality of witnesses. The problem is with your heart and with your ability to discern the truth. The problem is not that there's not enough evidence to support the claims I'm making, the problem is something inside of you. So he's gonna go on and he says, you have never heard his voice. You've never seen his form. Now at that point, they would probably agree. They would be the first to agree, like we've never heard his voice, like say Moses heard his voice or like Ezekiel heard his voice or like Joshua heard his voice. They'd probably agree quickly with that. They would agree quickly. Yes, so we probably, we've never seen his form. It wasn't like, uh, uh, like Moses who saw the backside of God or Ezekiel who saw the Lord high and lifted up uh, in the, uh, on the throne or uh, Isaiah who saw him in the temple high and lifted up, right? So they would be quick that. But this third thing he accuses them of is going to surprise them. He says, uh, nor, verse 38, nor does his word dwell in you. Now, this is going to surprise them because honestly, these religious leaders, most of them are going to know the Bible better than you or I will ever know the Bible. And yet Jesus says, yeah, you know it up here, but it's never entered into your heart. It doesn't dwell with you. And he said, you know how I, I can tell that the word doesn't dwell in you? You, can, you know how I can tell you've never heard his voice, you've never seen his form, you don't have his word? He said, the reason is you don't recognize who I'm from. 
Because if you knew his voice, you would recognize his voice coming through me. And so he says, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. Now catch this, this is powerful. He said, listen, you study the scriptures diligently. You know them like the back of your hand. And you do that because you think in them you have eternal life. That if you just spend enough time studying Torah and enough time studying the prophets, that God will somehow be impressed and you'll receive eternal life. He said, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So we're going to see today that the scriptures are like a sign pointing us in a direction. The scriptures are like a roadmap showing us the way. But the value doesn't come in studying the signs or memorizing the roadmap. The value comes when we take the journey. And it doesn't matter how well you know the roadmap. If you're not following it to where it points, it's of no value. And so he said, you, you diligently study the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but these are the very scriptures that come to testify about me, and yet you refuse to come to me. You, you won't follow where they're pointing. He says, now, I do not accept glory from human beings. And this is something Jesus will say over and over again. I, I'm not into pleasing people. I'm not looking for your praise or approval. We've seen this over and over, haven't we? That Jesus, his one passion is to, to live his life for the audience of one. He's living to please his father. He says, so I don't accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I've seen it all through John. John. Jesus knows people. And he said, but I know you. And catch this, I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. That, that's the real issue here. The issue is not that there's not enough evidence. The issue is there's something wrong in your heart that you can't read the evidence that I've provided. He said, I have come in my Father's name. And this is what he's constantly saying. I didn't come on my own. I came because the Father has sent me. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name to make a name for themselves, you'll accept them. So in the first century, there were many false messiahs. There were many men who claimed to be prophets or being sent from God. He says, you'll, you'll follow these other leaders because they're kind of like you. They're saying what you want them to hear. He says, but you will not follow me. He said, then he asked this great question. How can you believe? In other words, how can you believe in me since you accept glory from one another but you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Again, it's a heart problem. So the problem with you is that the reason you can't weigh the evidence, the reason you can't hear what God is saying through John the Baptist and what he's saying through the scriptures and what the Father is saying directly and what he's saying through my miracles, the problem is not the evidence, the problem is you. And the problem is, is your passion in life is not to know, to please God. Your, your passion is to get approval from your peers. And everything that approval brings you as religious leaders, the position, the praise, the prominence, the popularity, the position, the possessions, like 
The problem with you is you're not really seeking God. You're doing religious things, but you're using them as tools to get something else. So the problem is you're not seeking the glory from God. You're seeking glory from one another. So he says in 44, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And then here comes the clincher. He says, listen, don't think that I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are sound. So this is why they're so upset with Jesus. They're so upset with Jesus because they believe he's violated the law of Moses. He's healed on the Sabbath. And so what they're saying, and we'll see this all through John, is we don't know who you are, but we stand with Moses. We're Moses men. We're, we're Mo, we, we believe in, we know God spoke to Moses. We don't know who spoke to you. We'll hear him say that very thing later on in John. We stand with Moses. And Jesus said, here's the irony. That the judgment, it won't be me that's your accuser. It's gonna be Moses. The one that you have put your hope in. The one you claim to be following. And he, and he goes on and he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how in the world are you going to believe what I say? So powerful passage. And with that, with that we, we wrap up this first major confrontation that Jesus has with the religious leaders in Jerusalem after he heals this, uh, this, this man who's been lame for 38 years. Now, we're going to see, we're going to see several other major confrontations. We get to chapter 7, and chapter 8, and chapter 9, and they're going to build until in chapter 11, they're going to make the decision, that's it, we're taking him out. We saw it here, they wanted to kill him, but it was sort of the spur of the moment, uh, he's blaspheming, let's stone him. By the time you get to chapter 11, it's like, we, we got to take this guy out, the whole nation's going to follow him, it's going to bring Rome down on our head, he's got to go. But we're seeing here the very start of the conflict in Jerusalem. Now, what I want to do today, though, in the time that we have together, is I want to highlight two important principles that flow out of this passage that are extremely important for our spiritual growth, uh, understanding what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how we grow that Jesus alludes to in this, in this passage. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called Signs, Spiritual Insights. So I want to give you two, the two principles. It won't take a lot of time because we've spent some time unpacking them already. But I want to give you the principles and then I want to come back and ask a really important question. So here we go. Uh, uh, the, first, the first principle goes like this. That G, what Jesus wants us to understand is that spiritual insight starts with the heart. Spiritual insight or spiritual discernment, the ability to discern spiritual truth is not as much intellectual as it is spiritual. It, it's about the matter, it's a condition of our heart. So Ken, here, here's the logic, right? Here's the logic Jesus is laying out. He understands their courtroom scene, their courtroom mentality. He's making this incredible, these incredible cosmic claims. He understands that he needs to back those up. So he calls out his witnesses, right? John the Baptist, huge witness. His miracles, huge witness. His father behind it all, the scriptures. And he lays them up, but he, but he essentially says, but you know what? You're still not gonna believe in me. And the problem is not with the quality of the evidence. The, the problem is the condition of your hearts. 
And he says, the problem is that in your heart, you're not really pursuing God. Your top priority is not to know him, not to love him. You have other agendas in your life, other gods in your life that are more important. And he said, as a result, you're not going to be able to believe. Not because the evidence is not there, not because intellectually you don't understand what I'm saying, but because spiritually you're in the wrong spot. And so he says in John 5, there in your notes, he asks them this great question. He says, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but don't see glory, seek the glory that comes from the only God? You're, you're not really pursuing God. And if you're not pursuing God, if you don't want to know the truth, if your passion is not to know him and to love him and to please him, if that's it, then truth is going to go over your head. You're going to miss it. You're not going to have the spiritual discernment that you need. It's interesting because Jesus is going to teach a very similar principle when we get to chapter 7. In chapter 7, uh, this scene is another national feast. Uh, and the nation of Israel is coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which happens every fall. And once again, Jesus is going to make big claims. Once again, people are going to be blown away by his teaching. Uh, once again, the crowd is going to be divided whether to believe him or not. Uh, and Jesus understands this. Like he understands that the message he is bringing is radically different from the messages they're normally used to hearing. He understands that, right? But he's going to say something very powerful. He says, the question is, how do we discern if Jesus is telling the truth or not? How do we know if he's really who he claims? How do we know whether to trust his teaching or not? And look what Jesus says in chapter 7. And it's one of the most important verses in all the Bible in terms of our spiritual growth. Jesus answered, he said, my teaching is not my own. So that's not new. He constantly says that. He says, it comes from the one who sent me. But then catch this. Anyone who what? Let's underline that. Chooses to do the will of God. Underline that. He says, I know this is hard to understand, but anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether the teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying your ability to discern truth is dependent on the condition of your heart. Do you want to know God's will? Do you want to follow him? Is that your passion? If you do, then the discernment will be there. But if you don't choose, you're not going to figure it out. It's not intellectual, it's spiritual. I love this in the uh, New American Standard Version is more uh, kind of a literal translation of the Greek. And you know what it says in the Greek? I love this. It's how I learned it so long ago from the New, New American Standard, kind of cut my teeth on, on that version. But what Jesus says, what it says in the Greek is if any man is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it's from God or not. If anyone's willing to do can I tell you something that I found in my life is that when I'm trying to discern God's will for my life, until I get to the place I'm willing to go either way, I cannot hear the voice of God. 
Now let me tell you this, I'm not saying that I come to a place where I don't care what God says. Do you remember Jesus in the garden when he said, not my will, but yours be done? He did not want to go to the cross, there's nothing, but his deeper will was to do whatever his father said. And so he, he came to this place, I'm willing to do whatever is required. And I'm telling you, when you're seeking God's will in your life, until we come to a place where we're willing to do whatever he wants us to do, it's going to be very hard to discern the will of God. And this is what Jesus is saying. When it comes to discerning spiritual truth, the key is your heart. It starts with your heart. Now, that leads to number two. Now, number two is like a subset of number one. Right, So it's like, number one is a big picture principle. Uh, when it comes to discerning, to discerning spiritual truth, whether you're listening to John the Baptist, whether you're looking at the supernatural signs, whether you're uh, listening to the Father, whether you're reading scripture, uh, there's this principle, number one, that our ability to discern spiritual truth, however God speaks, it, it starts with our heart. So number two is a subset of that, but a very important subset. And it goes like this that scriptural insight starts with the heart. And so, of course, God speaks to us in a wide variety of ways, but the most important ways he he speaks to us is through his written word. And this is where the religious leaders prided themselves on this, that they studied the word, as Jesus said, diligently. Huge portions memorized and so on. Um, And yet, that spiritual, the the scripture, their ability to discern the truth through the scriptures was very poor. So they they knew the scriptures intellectually, but they didn't didn't encounter the scripture. They didn't hear the voice of God leading them through the scriptures. And so this is what Jesus says in uh, John chapter 5. He says, remember he says, his word does not dwell in you. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify in me. But catch this, yet you what? Okay, come on. You what? Thank you. One more time. We can just better. We refuse. He says, you're choosing not to follow where the scriptures are leading. The scriptures are on the witness stand, promising to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help them God, right? They're testifying, but he says, but you're refusing to follow what they're, in the the direction they're telling you. And this is what I want you to catch, men and women. This is one of the biggest dangers of spiritual life is to think that by studying the Bible, we automatically get closer to God. Some of the worst people in the world knew the Bible. Like the people that crucified Jesus knew the Bible, like the back of their heads. Just studying the Bible, knowing the Bible doesn't necessarily lead to transformation. It doesn't necessarily lead you to God. It's what you do with what God says in his Bible that makes a difference. Are you with me? 
It's what he says is, hey, the scriptures are telling you go this way, follow this man, but you don't want to follow this man. And so the scriptures only have the ability to transform our life to the extent that we're listening for the voice of God and following where they're directing us. And Jesus says the irony of this crazy situation is that you know the Bible like the back of your hands, but instead of the Bible being like a roadmap that's gonna lead you to life, it's gonna stand up at the judgment and condemn you. Because while claiming to love the word, you didn't follow the word. Now, this leads to a very important question for our lives. Let me give you the question, and then I want to unpack it some. But the question is simple. What's the condition of your heart? We've seen today that, that spiritual insight starts with the heart. That scriptural insight starts with the heart. That our ability to hear the voice of God speaking to us through his word, through his spirit, through uh, the evidence, through uh, all, all different kinds of means that, that God is willing to speak, but our ability to hear his voice is directly dependent on our ability to listen and then follow. Here's something you might write, want to write down to help you remember this. Like when it comes to spiritual truth, we see what we are willing to see. We see what we're willing to see. We hear what we're willing to hear. And that was the problem of these spiritual leaders is that they were not willing to hear the voice of God because it would have been endangered the things they valued most in life. And so true, same with us. That when there's something in our life that matters to us more than pleasing God, then we're, we're Cut, we're, we're inhibiting ourselves from being able to hear his voice because we're not willing. We're not hearing because we're not, we're not willing to hear. We're not willing to see. Um, and so this is true in all of our life and the different ways God speaks, but I think it's especially true when it comes to the scriptures and the way that we approach the scriptures. Um, the question is, what's the condition of your heart? And and uh, how much are you willing to see? Uh, to what extent are you willing to hear what God might be wanting to say to you? You know, sometimes you'll hear someone say, maybe you've said this yourself, yeah, I'm just not getting that much out of church anymore. You know, I, I, just, I go, I hear the message, I just don't get that much. Or I, uh, you know, I, I, I go to my life group, but I don't know, it's not really causing me to grow. Uh, or, you know, I, I try reading the Bible. I just don't get anything out of it. And I think sometimes there's legitimate, there's legitimate things going on there. But I think we always need to ask the question, let me ask you, is the question the church? Is the problem the church? Is the problem the life group? Is the problem the Bible? Or is the problem you? that you're not hearing the voice of God because you're not willing to hear. You don't want to hear. 
because if he spoke, it might require something different of your life. So it's easier just to read it and to not hear his voice and to kind of go along with it, to still play the game, but not be transformed. You know what I found? I found, <laughs> I found this. I found this with believers that are really hungry to grow um, and that are, I just really want to please God in their life. They can grow from almost anything. Like they can even be in a bad church and grow. <laughs> they can even be in boring sermons and they still get something out of it. They, they can be in a really blasé life group and still grow from it. They, they can read the word and even if they haven't learned much about how the word's put together or how to study it on your own, they, they still get stuff. And you know why? It's because they're so hungry to hear. They're so hungry to hear. And so, can I tell you something? I remember once in my life, I'm gonna tell this story, but some of my notes, we'll see how it goes tonight. But uh, I remember once uh, when I was going through a time of kind of repentance and turning back to the Lord when I was very young. And uh, I was like 16 or something. And it, it gone through a period of sin and disobedience and rebellion in my life. And uh, through a series of events, I came back and recommitted my life to the Lord. And I remember my youth pastor, he gave me this book that was called Rightly Dividing the Word of God. It was like the most boring book <laughs> I've ever received. It was horrible. May I tell you something? I still grew because I was so hungry to grow. Let me, let me ask you this. In your life, when you come to church, whether it's here with us, with your online, click on that TV. When you come to church, when you go to your life group, when you open your Bible one-on-one -on -one with God, can I ask you, what is the posture you're taking to those times? What is your spiritual posture? Is your posture, I think of like the Old Testament, the prophet Samuel, the first time God spoke to him, he didn't recognize his voice. The older priest Eli said after the third time, hey, the next time you hear that voice, say, it, go, it, say this, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Is that your posture? Like when you, when you come to church, are you on the edge of your seat? God, I'm here for you. I'm here in your place. I'm here in your church. I know your Holy Spirit's here, and God, I just really long to hear from you. What do you want to say to me? Is there anything you want to say to me tonight through this, through this word, through this time of worship? Is there anything? I'm just here, Lord. Is there anything you want to say? When you go to your life group, is your attitude like, Holy Spirit, please speak to me tonight. If there's anything you want to show me, use my brothers and sisters. Use your word. Use the time of, use some, but I want to grow. When you open up your word and your time with God is your, your posture, Lord, you know, I always understand this. I'm still learning how to do this, but I really long to hear your voice. I want to please you. I want you to show me how to please you. You see, when our posture's right, suddenly our ears are opened and our eyes begin to see because we come with the right heart. 
See, spiritual insight starts with the heart. So the question for all of us is, so how's our heart? What's the condition of our heart? Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word. It seems like I say that almost every week, but every week when I get done teaching, it's how I feel. It's just the power, the power, the beauty, the insight of your word, how it separates between, you know, joints and marrow. It, it, it reveals the thoughts of our heart. It shows us a path to life. And oh Lord, may we never be like these religious leaders that knew your word like the back of their hand but didn't recognize when you came in person. Father, may that not be us. May, may we be a people that are hanging on every word. May we have people that are really pursuing you, a people that love you, and because we love you, we can hear your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.